0: From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome, I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we'll hear from my colleague, Grace Vitellione, about the complicated network of federal, state, and local agencies involved in disaster relief and mitigation efforts. And also, the story of the people who sometimes fall through the cracks. And we'll sit down with WECT investigative reporter, Michael Pratz, to take stock of the region's public-private partnerships. From Riverplace to Project Grace and a peek into the future, but first, Tracy and Gerard Newkirk, a Wilmington power couple who founded Genesis Block in 2020 to help accelerate minority-owned businesses. One of the Newkirk's latest projects is converting conversations to contracts and capital, aimed at connecting minority-owned businesses with contracts from a host of major government agencies and corporations. They've got an upcoming event on Wednesday, February 15th, but before that, I wanted to bring Tracy and Gerard into the studio to talk, not just about their work, but why their focus on entrepreneurship is so important to them. All right, well, my guests now are Gerard Newkirk, he's the co-founder and CEO of Genesis Block, and Tracy Newkirk, who is the co-founder and president of Genesis Block. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks
1: for having us, man. Thanks for having
0: us. So we're here to talk about the Converting Conversations to Contracts program. And before we get into that, I want to get into a little bit of sort of the economic background of this, why you guys are looking at this in the first place. And that has to do with the revenue parity problem yeah. between minority-owned businesses and white-owned businesses. Yes. So let's talk about this a little bit.
2: Yes, and I'll let Tracy speak a lot more to Conversations and Contrast because that's her baby. I'll just give some economic background. Uh, we've been doing a lot. You know, we started Genesis Spot back in February of 2020 with a mission to build the entrepreneur class, and a real focus on minority-owned firms. And that's taken us a long way as far as our journey. But what we realize is that just that, the revenue parity gap is the big miss. Um, minorities currently constitute about 40% of the population in the United States and are responsible in less than 9% of revenue as far as all farm world payroll. So that, we feel, is the biggest friction point. And Traditionally, we know minority-owned firms have really struggled getting their financing and access to capital that was needed. So we decided the best way to capitalize these businesses is to get them more contracts, meaning get them integrated into the supply chains of large organizations, large companies, the government. And a lot of what we do at Genesis Block is help these minority firms prepare for contracts to help them strengthen their business, to get technical skills training, to get entrepreneur skills training. So a lot we set a goal this year to connect uh, minority firms to over $2.5 million in contracts. And we have a lot of large organizations that we partner with with that, including New, New Hanover County, City of Wilmington, um, Novon, North State Bank, NCD. Uh, NCD, North Carolina Department of Transportation. So, um, and I'll let Tracy speak to the event, but that's really the aim is the minority firms lack three critical things, which is knowledge and networks, uh, critical uh, expertise as far as skills training, Two being knowledge or access to capital, and three being the access to customers. So our real focus is to help
0: drive that. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tracy. So let's talk about the event and and how this fits in with your mission.
1: Okay. So we started um, conversations to contracts last February. It was kicked off for Black History Month, and it was back then it was called Inclusive Connections. And what we were, the whole design was to bring diverse-owned businesses into the room and get commitment from our anchor institutions. And we did it every other month last year. We will never do that again. (laughs) So this year, we're doing it quarterly. And so the whole goal, and we're so happy because we have gotten the commitment from the majority of our anchor institutions in Wilmington, such as the city of Wilmington, New Hanover County, um, Corning, GE, North State Bank um, we the State Department NCDOT, is very committed to what we're doing here locally in Wilmington and so we've gotten the large organizations UNCW K-4 all K-4 of community college oh, how could I forget Cape Fear Community College? Jerry Coleman, if he's listening. Um, We never forget Cape Fear Community College. Um, They are such a huge partner with Genesis Block. Um, But what we did was we got that commitment from the anchor institutions to bring their contracting opportunities in and see the value of it and then build the relationships with these diverse owned businesses and so that's how we started and now that we have all these relationships with anchor institutions now we're recruiting more and more diverse owned businesses to come in and understand that the whole goal and the whole reason why the organizations are here is to help them get contracts. And so then as they grow and they get capacity and they get contracts, we also, our third wheel of our ecosystem is our financial partners. And so we bring in different types, CDFIs, big banks, small banks, community banks, so that the, um, I always say, North State Bank is our um, presenting sponsor, for conversations of contracts, and I always give this example, I want our businesses, when it's time for them, they've gotten all these contracts and they're ready to grow and now they need some capital, I want them to think about I'm going to see Sabrina at the bank and not I'm going the North State Bank. And so, having our banking partners there at the tables and building these relationships is just a beautiful thing because now you got anchor institutions that are going to give them the contracts. The diverse owned businesses are going to grow in capacity. And now they're going to need more capital and they're going to have these relationships already built with the financial partners. So, we bring them together quarterly to keep it happening because we could, we've opened the events. And that's what I said. I don't want this to be, uh, oh, let me get this off my list. I done it. I went. It was once a year. We I'll see them next year. Because then you say things that you you plan to do and next year you hadn't done it. But if you see me every quarter, you gotta. Make, if you tell me we're working on a contract or I'm thinking about doing this with you, when I see you next quarter, I can bring that back up again. And and, and you know, it's not a bad thing. People forget things, but if we keep it in front of them quarterly, hopefully we'll remember that we're trying to close two point five million dollars in contracts for diverse owned businesses.
0: So for for people who aren't entrepreneurs, the, I think the two things you're talking about here is, for the, on the contract side, right the you know, one of the largest businesses in North Carolina is North Carolina, right? Followed by the counties in North Carolina, the schools in North Carolina, everything from mowing the lawn to painting the buildings to putting in HVAC to computer to IT contracts. Like if there's a business, the state is hiring people to do mm-hmm. that business and they, they need stuff. You know, they need materials. And it's a huge industry. And as an outsider, I'm not much of a business reporter. I have no idea how you get into that. world. Like, how do you how do you be the guy? who does the IT (laughs) contracting for, like, the UNC system, for example, you know, or the guy who (laughs) provides the school lunches for New Hanover County. Like, there's, regardless of the business, there's a place here. So, how, like, how does that connection actually happen?
1: So, I always laugh and tell all of my businesses, I love your CEOs, but I don't want them at this event. They have no idea what's happening in the purchasing and procurement departments of your organizations. So the real relationship that you want to, we, we want to build is with purchasing, procurement, and the people who oversee their supply diversity programs because they're the ones who know what is coming down the pipeline. And even our businesses that are coming, I've asked them, I was like, don't, you know, it's really nice for you to tell me how to get on your website and how to register with you. I can figure that out. What I want you to bring, is the low-hanging fruit. What are the opportunities that the diverse-owned businesses that are coming to the trade show can come up to your table and say, hey, here's my co- um, the capacity of what I can do, and now we can make a contract and a deal. So it's really building those really strong relationships with the procurement leaders and the purchasing leaders of the organizations, and then making sure, getting in front of, like building the relationship so you can get pre- budget information, what's coming in the budget, because of a lot of our businesses, what they need is that knowledge ahead of time so they can start preparing, they can start getting, you know, getting whatever licenses they need or starting a business in that category. Those areas that um, help them get a leg up in the process. And so we try to help with that. Mm -hmm.
0: And the other question I want to ask, this is is the access to capital side. (laughs) What makes that difficult for a diverse owned business or a minority owned business?
2: Well, you know, kind of three factors. First, there's not really the rich uncle, you know, which is where most ideas get financed in most cases by the rich uncle or by mom, by dad, by someone that's close to you, that's not really looking for a return on investment, that just believes in you and wants to help you. In minority communities, they traditionally just don't have that, that resource. Uh, the second thing is there's not the business network, as Tracy alluded to earlier. They don't know Sabrina from North State Bank by name. They're not at the parties. They're not at the locales. So there's not the, the connection. And then the third thing is they don't really have the work history in order for a financial partner to give them the trust. So if, even if I've done these things, if, I, if I've done these jobs successfully, there's not a public record for North State Bank to see my performance. So I don't have then the, the business profile. So a lot of what we're doing at Genesis Block is with platforms like Conversations to Contracts, is giving the visibility to the minority-owned firms so that we can close some of those stop gaps from them getting capital, because that's the only way you're going to
0: grow. You got to be capitalized in order to grow. I've certainly read about more than my fair share of startups where, way way down in the article, there's like, you know, oh, and I want to thank my father who <laughs> runs the third largest <laughs> bank in the East Coast. Like that, usually it's not in the, it's never in the headline, no. you know. But it's it's you know, it's in. The, we do know this. It is in the public record. The other thing I want to ask about, um, one of the articles. Um, or studies actually that you cited um, in a, a recent blog post was looking at how long it would take to close this uh, revenue parity gap yeah. um, if we just left things the way they are because there are you know diverse entrepreneurs out there working their butts off yeah. the gap is closing but at a rate that it, I think it was 333, 333
2: years. years to parity mm-hmm. so if we
0: just leave it the way it is now yeah. in three and a third centuries <laughs> <laughs> it'll be square yeah we'll be good <laughs> yeah. so not everyone's going to want to wait that long right Mm-mm.
2: no yeah that that was done by the michigan minority supply council and they, they partnered with the company to and and we really went in depth on that and in, and part of you mentioned it earlier so much of contracts or the transactions of goods and services happens by government agencies you know new Hanover county has a 400 million dollar budget wilmington has 200 million new Hanover county schools has like 185 million you're almost at a billion dollars. So if they're not transacting with minority-owned companies, then what? how are the minority-owned companies going to be successful in the economy? So this study focuses a lot on that, that we have to have a commitment from large organizations, from anchor organizations, to put minority-owned firms in their supply chain. Because if that doesn't happen, we're going to be another three centuries before there's any, any revenue parity.
1: And I think a big part, too, is our... Elected officials, our government and um, our state officials, the federal officials, understanding that when they are funding programs that are supposed to help minority businesses, they need to be funding the programs that are helping them get their capacity up and not just programmatic meetings, meetups, and things like that. They're good because you got to have a network. But that technical skills training, the capacity building, the you know making sure the, the incubator environments for these organizations, that is so critical because we can say let's go get um, capital and let's go get contracts all we want to. If they don't have the technical skills and the knowledge and the expertise to grow a business, it's going to fall apart anyway. And I think that's one of the things that we focus on Yes, we're out front trying to get them contracts, but on the back end, we're also working on making sure they have the technical skills. They know what their break-even analysis are. They know how to run a business. They know who their market is. All of those things that make a strong business, we also want to help, too, because we hear also, you know, all the time, well, I tried to work with this business, and, you know, they couldn't fulfill the orders or they couldn't do the job. That's part of what we want to work on, also, but that's where our, our leaders that are writing programs that give out grants and other things can make sure that they're digging in when they're giving this money out. Are the organizations going into that level of detail to make sure our minority businesses can take on the contracts?
2: Yeah, because we saw that. And it, it, you bring up a great point. And specifically when we were talking with G.E. Hitachi, you know, they're making a significant investment into the nuclear technology and renewable technology here. But in order to, you know, for mine, one of their biggest friction points is in order for minority owned firms or any firm to participate in their supply chain, it takes a lot of credentials. You got to have, you know, obviously the insurance, the liability. And a lot of what we witness is a lot of the funding that's going into minority owned firms, It's that's a big gap that needs to be addressed. How do we get these companies ready to participate in a supply chain as far as having the credentials, as far as having? the ability to pass the specifications and the standards of quality control in order to participate in the supply chain. So we're getting really granular mm-hmm. in what it's going to take in order for companies to be able for to not be 333 yeah. years to parity.
1: And that's, to me, that granular piece is what is missing in the what's always been done. If we keep doing it the way we've always done it, we will continue to have the check the box. Like we checked all the boxes and we couldn't find a fit. Now we've got to make sure that the boxes aren't just being checked. We're working on making sure that there is a fit. I think that's where the focus needs to go now.
0: I feel like there has been some feel-good seminar-ism going on (laughs) around the country where, yeah, like it's, you know, it's it's telling people the parts they already know Mm -hmm. and then the really... You know, like you said, granular, really fine tuned. Like, how do I get certified to make the part that goes in the control rod in the nuclear power plant so that the U.S. government will let me do that? Like, how do I do that?
2: Yes. that because that's all that's needed. That's why, that's the real issue. Yeah.
0: Yeah. on a much broader level, um, you know, this, this to me, is, you know, it's part of the broader American story about you know, wealth inequality between minorities and, and whites. And there's lots of different ways to sort of slice that cake and, and look at it. You guys have been really focused on entrepreneurship, like that's the word i associate with you before anything else so why why entrepreneurship
2: because we feel that that is without prosperity there is no peace you know that's an age old yiddish proverb so prosperity and economic development that those are the drivers if you if you talk to novant health and they talk about the social determinants of health 80% of those are going to be economically related so for us entrepreneurship ownership Self-reliance; these components are critical to building great individuals, great communities, great you know cities, towns. But it has to start with that economic foundation. Um, you know there are one hundred and thirty-five thousand black-owned firms in the United States, but there are over thirty-five million. So a lot of the things that are derivatives of some of these structural economic issues. When we talk about discrimination in employment. Well, if you only have 134,000 firms for 40 million people, it is what it is. So this is why we started with entrepreneurship, because we wanted to get to the foundation and we wanted to to be able to come up and develop a company that can address it in communities block by block in a decentralized, hyper-localized perspective, because we feel that that's going to have the most impact.
1: In 2018, when I did the speech um, for the Greater Wilmington Business Journal on intentional inclusion, and I talked about building a Wilmington that my two sons would want to live, work, grow, and raise a family. And I recognized that. A large part of that is building a solid, strong African-American middle class. And to get a strong African-American middle class, you're going to have to have a strong African-American business class. And so building that out, when we started thinking about it, and the whole block by block, the more entrepreneurs and the more our people see ourselves on the block, running the businesses, and having a voice in your community. I think I heard it the best. We went to the Black Blockchain Summit this year and um in D.C. and gosh the lady's name is leaving me now but her comment she was on a panel and her comment resonated so much to me she says social justice without economic justice is a one-handed clap and we spend so much time on social social justice but then when it's time to sit down and talk about the economics of why we are where we are it's like it's quiet in the room like we can have we'll do memorials all the time and have lavish um, memorials for different things and get that funded but then when it's time to fund and talk about how do we economically bring ourselves up so when we talk about how we create our own prosperity we want social justice, but then when it's time to talk about that economic piece, there, you know, there's no conversation for that. And and, and so we feel the stronger we can make our entrepreneurs and the stronger they have a stance in our community, then you can make, start making some of your own decisions and have a stronger, broader voice.
2: And entrepreneurship, at the heart of entrepreneurship, is just creators solving issues and problems. So if you begin to build your society or your community where that's the foundation, that in and of itself leads to a much more rich, much more cultivated group of people. I mean, if you look at, America was founded on entrepreneurship, essentially. I mean, and and every, the Harlem Renaissance, and all of these great movements that I studied, the foundation was always entrepreneurship and creativity. So,
0: And having a stake in the work you're doing. Yeah. Because otherwise you're working for someone else.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Shaking money sideways and somebody (laughs) telling you it's long.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, Anything else you guys would want to say about this upcoming event or the program in general?
1: Well, I do want to make sure they know where to find us and what uh, what day and when. Yes, please. Yes, please. (laughs) So it is February 15th. That's next Wednesday um, from 9 to 1230. There is going to be a lunch. We're doing it in conjunction and partnership with Carolina Small Business Fund. So we'll have a panel at the end at um, 1130 to 1230 and a lunch. But the trade show style event portion will be from 9 to 11. And so if you are a diverse owned businesses looking to grow contracts, come out, if you are a large organization that's looking for diverse owned businesses to support in your supply chain come out and if you're somebody just in the community and you're like, you know what, I need to get that wall painted or I need to get that done <laughs> and I would much rather go there and meet somebody than trying to find somebody in the Google, in Google or Yellow Pages if they still make them, come out and see us. You never know who you'll run out, run into at Conversations to Contracts.
2: And, and also, as Tracy mentioned, we're partnering with Carolina Small Business Development Fund. And for the month of February, they're having a Black Entrepreneurship Series where they're celebrating black entrepreneurship in North Carolina. And there are three cities. There's Durham, Charlotte, and Wilmington that they're highlighting. And So essentially, we're in competition Mm -hmm. with Durham and Charlotte. So we would love for everybody to make sure that you register for our event. I think Charlotte had 150 registered. Durham had like 132. We're like at 104. So – If you get this, if you're on the grid, register our event. Come out to show us, especially the minority-owned firms. When they see there's a massive community out there to support them, it does so much for their psyche. The entrepreneurial journey is very, very lonely. And sometimes just by coming up to show up to see these guys that are out here and they have their booth set up, it does wonders for them. So come out and see us at the McKeithen Center.
0: All right, and we'll have links and directions and all that good stuff on the page so people can, can find it and go and register and beat Durham. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs>
1: but, you know, I think that's amazing, our numbers, because per capita, yeah, per we're not
0: like killing yeah. them. P- pound for pound, you know, punching punch at, at him. Wilmington punches above its weight. Yeah, yeah, We're punching out there. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we're excited about that.
0: Well, Gerard Tracy, thank you so, much, so much for much, coming. Thanks for your time. Okay, we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'll be joined by my colleague, Grace Vitalione, to talk about the long road to recovery in the wake of Hurricane Florence. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman, joined now by my colleague Grace Vitellione. For the last couple of months, Grace has been looking into the story of a family in Hampstead in Pender County, where Hurricane Florence caused catastrophic flooding back in 2018. Four and a half years later, some families are still waiting for help. Why? Well, as Grace found out, that's a very, very complicated question, but we're going to try and get to some answers on today's show. So Grace, thanks for being here.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So. Back in October, we got a call from a Hampstead resident named John Pike. He said his house got destroyed in Hurricane Florence back in 2018, and he wanted to talk to us about a grant he applied for. This was right after the hurricane. So you went out to visit him at the site of his former house, right?
3: Yeah, and John actually showed me pictures of his house during the storm. The floodwater was up to the top of his garage, and we looked around the house, and now it's just basically studs.
0: Okay, what did John tell you about this grant?
3: Okay, so in 2019, John was approved for the FEMA Hazard Mitigation Grant Program, HMGP. Homeowners can apply to have their properties either elevated or demolished in return to a natural, undeveloped state. And John chose the latter. He knew his destroyed house was in this really bad flooding spot and it would only grow worse. So in return for acquiring his property, the county was going to give him the amount for his house at pre-storm market value. So for the past four years, John and his family have moved basically from place to place while they wait for this grant money but you know, it's taken a toll. Here's John.
4: My wife literally just recovered from triple negative breast cancer at 40 years old, very first mammogram, the worst possible cancer, and then this. And she's an immigrant. She moved here when she was 10 or 12 from Italy. And so this is our American dream. Right here, you're looking at it. You know, and it's gone. She built this, this was her house, she was devastated. This is where we were gonna you know, raise our kids and be our grandkids and all that.
0: So getting the pre-store market value sounds like a good deal. But what John's going through sounds really hard. Is John the only one going through this?
3: No, not really. I I looked at Pender, Brunswick and New Hanover counties, and there are 92 properties that were approved for the HMG buyout program and are still waiting now. A FEMA spokesperson told me these projects take an average of four years to be completed. But you know, still, at least for John, we're past that. It's 2023. That's four and a half years. Um, but now things get complicated because I want to talk about what how this program works. So the 92 properties I just talked about in those three counties are in the non-expedited program, and I'll get to that in a second. But there were 41 properties in the expedited program that were already finished in 2021.
0: Right. And the state told you that the expedited program was available to people who could basically get their uh, documentation and fill out the application and get all that done uh, in a a shorter window and people who didn't had to move on to the non-expedited program.
3: The non expedited program is a little different, and I'm going to oversimplify it for the sake of time. But if you want an in depth explanation, you should go to whqr.org for the web version. But essentially, counties help homeowners submit applications for the grant to the state. The state sends those to FEMA. FEMA decides how much money to give to the state for the approved projects. And then the state finds contractors to do the work. Although, you know, some counties opt to find the contractors themselves and the funding for these projects statewide is in the tens of millions. It's a big program. And again, exact numbers, you can go to whqr.org.
0: Sure, we'll have a link to that on the page. And all right, this process, it does sound complicated. Is that why it takes so long? Is, is that why John and so many others are still waiting?
3: I wish I had been able to find a single answer to just say, here it is. But the truth is, there are a lot of factors. But, you know, here's the crux of the issue. The grants were designed to have a lot of checks and balances in the approval process, and their whole goal is to prevent future hazards. They aren't meant to be quick, but how they're being used and seen is as disaster recovery. Right. And so this is more immediate. And so people like John are relying on it for aid after a life changing disaster. So I talked to a researcher named Leah Campbell, and she summed it up really well. There's a disconnect in priorities. So local government and people on the ground, they might have one sense of, like, here's who we need to protect, who's here we need to get out of harm's way, here's who we need to get back into their homes as fast as possible, whereas the state
1: and FEMA in particular, they might have different perspective of, here's where it makes most sense to buy people out, to reduce future losses, here's what's most cost-effective.
3: And to your point, yeah, it's complicated. It's a bureaucratic mess, really. And
0: I know for you, because I I watched this from the other side of the newsroom, as a reporter, where this is your job to find answers, you had trouble figuring out which program did what. So how does that confusion and that disconnection sort of play out?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Campbell found in her research, which focused on the HMGP after Hurricane Matthew, that local government officials have a big burden to carry. They're sort of the middlemen between frustrated residents and higher up government officials in the midst of this really confusing program. And this has been sort of addressed since Hurricane Matthew. North Carolina came up with a state-centric model to help lift some of that weight off of local governments and streamline everything. And it also helps even the playing field between local governments who have a lot of money and staff to deal with this and those who don't. And most counties went with this during Hurricane Florence.
0: Right. Because if you have a county like New Hanover or Brunswick County with extensive administrative staff, they can help handle this. But if you're a more rural county with a smaller county government, you might you might struggle with it. So this state centric plan, has this worked?
3: I would say in some ways, yes. Arguably, it helped make the process more equitable and like less of a burden on local governments. Sure. But timeline wise, I mean, like we said, you know, John and a lot of other people are still waiting. But I want to talk about the problem of staffing, because this was something that staffing shortages were a challenge that Campbell found. And director Will Ray of North Carolina Emergency Management, which is the department running HMGP in North Carolina, said staffing can be a challenge for them, too. And an example of that was, you know, making benefits and pay competitive.
0: Okay, I don't want to sound like uh, a broken record, but (laughs) is this the reason the program is taking so long?
3: (laughs) I mean, no one would give me a hard yes for any one reason, right? And so that's why we're talking about a a lot of them. I will say another researcher I talked to who was around during the beginning of the HMGP for Hurricanes Fran and Floyd was Gavin Smith. And he told me that the process was quicker in his time, partly because he had a really large staff. He said burnout can be really common in this job, and that leads to turnover. Here's Gavin.
0: It is an incredibly difficult
2: emotional process to do that. It will wear you out. We knew that staff,
3: almost everyone was going to have a breaking
0: point. Okay, so burnout, staff turnover, I get that. Are there other issues?
3: Yes. Director Will Ray also named supply chain issues and having to stay low budget while attracting contractors is some other issues. You know, I want to be fair, to their credit, Ray and his staff seem to recognize that the lengthiness of the program is an issue, and they want to improve it. So
0: Ray's at the state level. How aware is FEMA of these issues at the federal level?
3: According to Ray, the FEMA staff he works with are aware of the problems and they want to improve, too. So it's a diplomatic answer. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I suppose the more important question to ask is, how are they going to make improvements, though?
3: Yeah, there are some solutions out there. Smith and Campbell both talked about the importance of really detailed planning before disasters even occur. But it's hard to find resources for that planning when HMGP, for example, is designed to react to a disaster instead of being proactive. And so here's Campbell. If it's baked into the system that money is available and activity and incentive and action all happens after a disaster, that's really hard no matter how well-intentioned you are to break.
0: OK, this is something we've actually heard at the county level, too, is that there needs to be more of a pre-disaster response instead of waiting for, say, you know, a major Category 5 hurricane to come through.
3: Yeah, it, it, the county's not the only one. A lot of agencies are realizing that. FEMA's new Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program, BRIC, is one example. BRIC funds grant projects separate from disasters, so more on the planning side. And FEMA itself was actually looking at a big chunk of the process time-wise, the benefit-cost analysis for these projects. A spokesperson told me they're evaluating potential changes there to see if there's a way to make the cost-effectiveness component faster. And in North Carolina specifically, NCOR, North Carolina Office of Recovery and Resiliency, is operating a new program called the Strategic Buyout Program for specific flood-prone areas in the southeastern part of the state. And it's pretty similar to the bio aspect of HMGP, except they go to homeowners in flood-prone areas before a disaster occurs.
0: Right, so you don't end up like John waiting for a mitigation program to come and save you as if it were a recovery program. Right. Okay, but I think we would hear from listeners if we didn't point out that the name Encore probably leaves a bad taste in some people's mouths. NCORE's Rebuild NC Homeowner Recovery Program took a lot of flack in the General Assembly for the program's let's just say, lengthy and complicated process.
3: Right. And so even though, you know, the Rebuild NC Homeowner Recovery Program, that's different from this new strategic buyout program, like we said, people get confused between different programs. And generally, there can be mistrust in all of these different buyout programs because of the problems with the different ones.
0: And as you report, trust is a big part of making these programs work. Absolutely. Okay. So awareness, movement around making things better, that's very good. But- What about John? Where is he now?
3: Yeah, the state actually just made an agreement with the contractor to do the work in Pender County, um, which the county signed off on. And John got a message from the contractor, he told me. So things are moving forward at last. And John said, you know, he really believes in this program. He thinks it's very important to avoid building in flood prone areas. He told me that a bunch of times. But it honestly hasn't been easy for him to be in limbo like this.
4: The, the psychological damage to my, my kids and my wife, my, my, my daughter and my wife, you know, it's been a big deal. My daughter is still a wreck over this whole deal. She was raised here, you know, and it's been pretty traumatic for her specifically, you know, but my daughter is very sensitive to her home that she was a baby in, you know.
0: Well, it's tough to hear that John and his family are, are still going through this, but we do hope that these recent developments will turn things around um, sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, Grace, thank you so much for being here and explaining it to me and our listeners.
3: Of course, anytime.
0: All right, we've got to take one more short break, but we'll be back with WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz and a look at the region's public-private partnerships. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom, I'm Ben Shockman. Six years ago, reporter Michael Prats came to work at Port City Daily, where I was working as the assistant editor. He quickly proved himself to have a keen eye for government projects that, let's just say, had issues. And one of the first of those that he sunk his journalistic teeth into was River Place, the city of Wilmington's multi-million dollar public-private partnership in the heart of downtown. As the project ran increasingly over budget, Questions about everything from eminent domain to affordable housing to whether or not the city should actually be in the development business were all raised. But in the long run, the city considered the project a success, and they weren't alone. Before River Place was even done, New Hanover County decided it wanted to get into the public-private development game, first with Project Grace, then its government center, and then Project Grace again, and maybe again in the future. I don't know, they say the third time is the charm. In any case, our area is home to some high-profile and big-ticket public-private partnerships, or P3s, as government wonks like to call them. So, Pratts is leaving WECT and heading out to Charlotte for a new gig. But before he goes, we wanted to have him on the newsroom to see if we could capture the past, the present, and the future of public-private partnerships. My guest now is WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratt. Thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Okay. Over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk about public-private partnerships. Ah, uh, yes. One of our favorite things to talk about. So I thought we would take a walk down memory lane with some of the major public-private partnerships. Some have come to pass. Some have been put out to pasture.
4: Yeah. So I think the best place to start with this would obviously be uh, the city of Wilmington's uh, major development, and that is River Place, which had been in the works since I've been in Wilmington, uh, where the...
0: Old, it, it used to be an old parking deck right there on Water Street, right? Yes. It was an uh, old and falling apart parking deck. And this is one of the first stories you really covered when you got here. Mm-hmm. And the idea was the city could build a new parking deck. Right. And it would cost a certain amount of money. Or they could build the parking deck as the ground, uh, the you know first couple floors. Right. And basically give the air rights to a private developer to build on top of it. Right. So on paper, this sounds good. You know, the, the public money is going to the public parking deck, and private money is building an enormous mixed-use building on top of it with restaurants, shops, uh, apartments. Luxury condos. Luxury condos. And that's going to increase the tax roll, uh, which is going to come back into the public offers.
4: Right. And theoretically, and I, I believe in practice, that is actually how things are working. They are making, the city does make tax revenue off of these, uh, off of these projects. But River Place was the first of that, and we saw it get waylaid real quickly. Uh, it went off course. We had issues with the air rights. We had issues with uh, drainage, which you're always going to run into in downtown historic area with a lot of eroding,
0: decaying uh, infrastructure. And we saw eminent domain cases go right. tenfold over budget. And at the end of the day, um, and we spoke to a, a bunch of experts who look at you know the median and average, which are two different things, uh, cost per parking spot, mm-hmm. and it looks like the city spent you know eight to ten million more right than if they had just built the parking deck. And to be fair, they would not have then had the private development on top of it. But it's going to take a long time for the tax value, mm-hmm. uh, for city tax, to catch up with what they overspent. And so that's that's the question: Should the city be effectively subsidizing a private development if they could have just sold the land and let a private developer do with it what they what they will, especially when they are subsidizing luxury condos. Mm-hmm. And we asked uh, Mayor Bill Sappho about this. It's difficult to get private developers to do affordable housing if it's by right development. Mm-hmm. If it's a conditional rezoning, it's a little bit of a quid pro quo. Not in an in a illegal sense, but in the, we will allow you to build a denser development if you make 10% of the units affordable. Right. So why didn't they do that when they controlled the project as part of a P3? They said, oh yeah, we didn't think about that until after... Right, that, that
4: was an afterthought for River Place. But then they said, um, well, moving forward, if we yeah. do any of these, we're going to ensure that this is taking place. Now, money where your mouth is, we haven't seen any of that come to fruition, but we also haven't seen any uh, successful public private partnerships in Wilmington, at least to that magnitude, since River Place. So uh, that is something yet to be seen because it just hasn't happened. Now, River Place is not the only P3 that we have seen. New Hanover County has actually um, entered into uh, one of them, which is the uh, county administration building, um, which is over there by uh, the bowling alley in between the bowling alley and the strip club
0: off of college. Yeah. And I, I, I will say when the city was looking at potential partners to do River Place, staff's favorite was a development team led by Brian Eckel, mm-hmm. who's the co-founder of uh, Cape Fear Development. It's done a lot of projects around town. And East-West Partners came in, and when East-West Partners presented, um, they didn't even have a plan. Eccle's team um, had pretty detailed plans for what they wanted to do with the property. Mm-hmm. East-West Devel- East West Partners came in and literally just talked about—and you can go and watch this city council meeting. I'm not making this up. Yeah. They just talked about how great Wilmington was and how great they were. Yeah. And 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 ultimately, counsel went with them. I think that might have left a bad taste in Eccles' mouth a little bit. I can't speak for him, but that, I would be frustrated. Yeah, definitely. Um, but he, I, you know, he he got his turn because his firm got to uh, got the green light to go with the government center, right? Government, which is the first time we really saw Dale Falwell get heavily involved. He wasn't super involved with River Place because it was a more straightforward deal. Right. And with the government center, the financing deal was a little more interesting.
4: Yeah. So the idea of the county selling the land rights and then renting it back, that's kind of the issue that Falwell had. It's like, hey, you already own this property. What are you doing trying to give this property away to a developer, which is a sweetheart deal? Yes, they have to put their own money into it and build these things. but if someone offered me, you know, a $10 million property and then they're going to pay me to rent it back from me, uh, that's a sweetheart deal. And that was part of the issue. And with the government center, they had to go back to the drawing board, think of a new way to finance it because the LGC and Falwell's office uh, basically said, no, this, this isn't happening. And that was probably um, foreshadowing what was going to happen with the other P3 development that we've seen recently uh, come off the rails, Project yeah. Grace.
0: Yeah, so, uh, and just a quick note, the LGC, that's the Local Government Commission, it's a part of the state treasurer's office. Um, Dale Fallow is the chair, but it also includes Beth Wood, who's the treasurer, and uh, a number of other uh, appointed... State auditor and yeah. things like that, yeah. So they're, they're uh, an appointed board that votes on major financial transactions um, won't go into the down the rabbit hole of what they get involved in. But if you're spending a chunk of money, if you're buying something, if you're leasing something, they're usually involved.
4: Yeah. And they just basically have to sign off on the major financing deals like this. They're not here to say, no, you don't need that Wilmington, no, you don't need this. It's not their role to tell governments what they need or what they should build. But that is how the uh, how the LGC gets involved. And they got very involved in Project Grace. They did. And we've talked we've we've covered that and talked about this a lot. Um, Project Grace got voted, voted down, shot down by the LGC um, right before um, the new board took over for New Hanover County Commissioners. Uh, So this was sometime in October, November, I
2: believe.
0: Yeah, and this is, you know, Project Grace was first introduced back in 2017. Mm-hmm. Right after Wilmington went ahead with River Place, the county obviously uh, wanted to get with the program and do their own P3. And it was initially put forward um, a bit more ambitious. We're talking skyscraper by Wilmington standards. Mm-hmm. That project kind of faded out and then came back in like 2019. Yeah. It was the same financing arrangement as the government center. Obviously a very different project. Mm-hmm. But the idea was the county would give the land, which currently has the 2nd Street parking deck, the library. downtown library, yep. more or less half of the block would stay in the hands of a private developer. This was Zimmer Development at mm-hmm. the time, who would build private development. And the public side would be a brand new downtown library. They later decided they're going to add a relocated Cape Fear Museum. And again, the county would lease it back from the developer. And again, Dale Falwell said, hey, it looks like you can save about plus or minus $20 million if you just directly build the new museum and library, sell the other half of the land to private developer, and let them do whatever they want.
4: Right. And the argument against selling the land that we've seen with particularly with New Hanover County, but I've also heard it from Wilmington city officials, is we own this property. We want to control what goes where. State Treasurer Dale Falwell has a problem with that. In Falwell's opinion, he, he said basically the free market is going to
0: decide what it wants to build there if you were to sell this property. I will also say there did seem to be some interpersonal animus developed towards the end of this mm-hmm. project race process. Uh, County commissioners in an agenda meeting, you know, voiced their frustration with Dale Falwell pretty publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, people do watch those agenda meetings. yeah. And um, by the end of it, it seemed that um, both Auditor Beth Wood and Dale Falwell were frustrated with the county. Mm-hmm. All that said, recently we heard Brian Eckel, who did the government center deal, express some interest in possibly—and I want to put you know big bright stars around the word possibly—rebooting Project Grace. Yeah. Now, whether or not this would be a public-private deal remains unknown, but it's on the table, according mm-hmm. to Eckel and his staff. They've made no decisions. There is no formal agreement on the table to be signed by the county. They could just build the library and museum for contract the way mm-hmm. the county wants it, buy the private part of land, and build what they want there. Right. Or they could try to what they call value engineer, which is basically reducing the cost, mm-hmm. and and take a new P3 back to the state treasurer's office, trying to address some of his concerns. But since Dale Falwell's main concern was the lease-to-own financing arrangement, I don't know how successful that would be. But all of that is on the table. So... Project Grace is dead. Uh, long live Project Grace. Project Grace is back. Yes. Um, so there's a, a few more P3s that I want to talk about. One is one that didn't happen, mm-hmm. and that is the Castle Street Project.
4: Right. And this is the former Wave Transit building, uh, which was a couple of Quonset huts, those big domed buildings, which were uh, bus depots, basically. They had some fuel pumps, and it was a brown uh, a brownfield development. That that means you know there's gasoline in the soil. You have to do some— uh, heavy mitigation
0: of any you know spoils there, which is like the the dirt, the soil. Yeah, um, uh, not not by any stretch of the imagination, um, a game ender. The uh, I believe it's the Lofts on Kerr mm-hmm. um, was a brownfield site. The entire north end of the downtown riverfront uh, was a brownfield zone. Yep. There are actually some um, financial incentives and tax cuts you can for redeveloping. Yes. You had to put in the money to. Take care of to mitigate those problems, yeah. But it's definitely not a you know a, a game ender for development,
4: right? And we saw multiple attempts to do something with this property, and again, this has been going on for four years or so. Um, and over that time, these buildings have become even more dilapidated because they are not looking good.
0: Yeah, it looks like they're moving forward with a, a sealed bid sale. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they've completely formalized that, but it, it does look like they will probably just sell it. Um, so now the project that a lot of people in the development world are turning their eyes to is the so-called Gateway Project. Right. And this is uh, City of Wilmington again, um, working again with East-West partners who did River Place. This was moving forward at a pretty good clip. Um, it was facilitated by the City of Wilmington Buying a number of properties on the north end. So if you're if you're coming into the city from Martin Luther King, this is on your right. It's sort of those empty lots between the apartment buildings that are along the Riverwalk, and right. PPD, and Third.
4: Yeah. So big vacant lots. You can see them used for parking for concerts and things like that. Granted, these these lots are prime real estate. Um, the city has been, you know, making making moves to purchase these these properties. We just saw it with the Salvation Army property there, uh, again, right there on Third uh, Street. It, as you mentioned, it was it was moving forward with some speed. We really don't know what the end game is right now, except we have seen the city eyeballing these. And the idea was to put a, uh, a grocery store, like a Whole Foods or something, you know, a boutique type grocery store, because the north side is
0: severely lacking a grocery store. There, there's, it's a food desert. Definitely, yeah. That's, that's an issue we've talked about quite a bit. And a question for further down the line is probably gonna be who that grocery store is for, whether it's uh, something a bit more affordable or something a bit bougier, uh, <laughs> someplace where you can go and get fresh shaved black truffles or a place you can go and get uh, you know kitchen basics. Um, and speaking of affordable, there's the issue of affordable housing because that is something the government can actually control when it gets into one of these P3s. It's, it's one of the benefits, and to that end, right, Um, obviously there was no affordable housing in the luxury condos at at River Place. Mm -hmm. But the county did put in a provision to provide 5% of the units to be affordable with the government center redevelopment that was supposed to be the same with Project Grace. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to the Gateway Project, as this might shock some people, but Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho said on this show he would like to see that number be closer to 30%. Now, I've heard developers and affordable housing People both kind of balk at that. Kind of balk at that. Some of the things they said I can't repeat on the air, but um, that is what Sappho said. I don't know if that's possible in a post-pandemic world, but that was the ambition. Mm -hmm. Um, So I expect that to be a part of the conversation as we move forward with that potential P3. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, another conversation for another time. And uh, I know you are leaving Wilmington and heading to Charlotte, and we wish you all the best. But these issues obviously aren't going away, so hopefully we can, uh, we can have you on the show again. Michael Pratz, thanks for being here, and uh, we'll see you again. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. That's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our guests, Tracy and Gerard Newkirk, Grace Vitalione, and WECT's Michael Pratts. And, of course, thanks to our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Fernell, and Megan McDevitt. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. You can also find it as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.